practice, a life of practice, is uh, very broad, extremely broad. And probably impossible to explore all of that breadth at one time. So hopefully we have a long life of practice and we can explore this aspect, this avenue, this avenue. In the broadest possible brushstrokes, we could draw out three avenues of practice, very, very broad brushstrokes now. One avenue is learning how to uh, be with our experience, how to meet our experience, how to accommodate our experience, especially that experience that's difficult, whether it's of the body, of the emotional life, of the mental life, of the external circumstances, that we are willing and able to open to that, to hold that experience, to draw close to it, to listen to that experience, whatever it is. That we are able to be with things as they are. And that's a huge and lovely part of practice. Sometimes that's what people mean when they say vipassana practice. Actually, I don't think there's such a thing as vipassana practice. I think it's even broader than that. And it would include what I would call the second avenue here. (coughs) Vipassana means to look in ways that bring freedom. To actually look at the present moment experience in ways that begin to unbind and loosen the suffering. So finding uh, sometimes just a little bit of a different view of an inner or an outer experience in the moment so that the suffering goes out of it. Sometimes a radically different view and practicing those different views so that the suffering goes out of experience to a, a small degree, to a great degree or completely. And then in this very broad, broad brushstroke picture. The third avenue, we could say, is a whole realm of cultivation. Now, of course, these aren't separate and they intermingle. But the third avenue is a whole realm of cultivation. The cultivation of calm, of samatha, samadhi, what we're talking about here. Depth of consciousness. Cultivation of love, of compassion, of generosity, of patience, of all, all those lists that the Buddha goes on about. And again, very broad brush, that that makes up a life of practice, and of course there are many more avenues than that. On this retreat, focusing mostly on one particular avenue. Any avenue in, in life, any avenue of transformation, of growth, whether it's meditative or otherwise, any avenue, any practice, any technique, any orientation, will have its benefits and its pitfalls, any of them. And it's a real maturity to not only realize what the benefits of one's particular avenue are, but also what the pitfalls are. So oftentimes we can point out the pitfalls of someone else's uh, way they're practicing. We're not so aware of, of what we've chosen. 
So each practice has its pitfalls. There's no such thing as the perfect practice, the perfect way of, the perfect avenue, the perfect way of practicing. There's this third avenue we could say of cultivation, and within that, uh, this retreat is focusing on one particular cultivation, which is the cultivation of calmness. And then within all that, what I would like to talk about tonight is how this deepens, uh, the, the, the possible depths of this particular cultivation. So what I want to talk about is uh, what's called the jhanas. Some of you may be familiar with this word. I want to talk about uh, jhana or jhana practice. So jhana is another Pali word. It's J-H-A-N-A. Jhana, lovely word. Uh, dhyana in Sanskrit. So I'm aware that for most of the people in the hall tonight, most of you, not all of you, but most of you, 90% of what I'm going to say is not in the realm of your experience yet. It's not in the realm of your experience. So I'm really, in a way, you can kind of just sit back and hear, it's like, you know, a slideshow of the outer limits of the solar system or something. (laughs) Uh, You don't have to worry about any of it. It's just, I just want to, in a way, paint a picture, a little bit of a map, and give a, a very, again, broad brushstroke overview of what this, how this practice unfolds. To me, it's very interesting, though, just as, as a precursor, it's very interesting what happens uh, sometimes in people's consciousness when we hear about experience or realms of experience where we're not... Uh, where we're not there yet. And what can happen? So tonight, as you're listening, perhaps just to notice that. Notice what goes on. Sometimes we hear something and uh, the reaction is, ah, what I'm doing is completely useless. Rubbishing one's own practice, dismissing what one has as irrelevant, only that's important. Or we feel bad about where we are. Or we just snatch after that. Or, sometimes, often the case, and I've been sitting in this hall, you know, there, looking this way, and the teacher, the speaker, is speaking about something very profound, and and for some people, it's just a disconnection. For some reason, it's just, it doesn't seem to apply to them, doesn't seem to have anything to do with their life. This couldn't possibly be relevant to me. And sometimes, a person's not even aware that this is going on, and sort of start, you know, doing the nails, and... (laughs) <laughs> looking out the window. Uh, and some of the person isn't even aware it's going on. There's some, for some reason, some, some disconnection comes in. So all I'm saying is, um, I think it's, it can be a loaded issue. Maybe it's irrelevant, you know, I don't know, to everyone here. But I'm just saying it because I think sometimes it can be quite charged. And so to include that in the awareness and just see what, <coughs> what happens inside. So, jhana practice, what does it mean? Uh, this word jhana, it used to be, in the old translations, it used to be translated as trance, which is terrible, ter- terrible translation. Gives um, all kinds of strange, uh, sort of cross-eyed imagery and, uh, you know, turbans and I don't know what. <laughs> um, it's better translated as something like absorption, meditative absorption or something like that. 
So this is really, again, it's what happens when the samatha really begins deepening. And this is a very short retreat, so again, I'm painting a picture of possibilities, possibilities in the future. So the Buddha uh, went into great detail about this, um, very, very precise, uh, sort of very, um, quite rare in spiritual traditions, that, that degree of precision about states of consciousness. And that's, in a way, what jhanas are, they're states of consciousness. And he outlined eight states of consciousness that are particularly, um, he, he felt, and of course I agree with him, uh, relevant, uh, really, really helpful, transformative, leading to liberation, leading to freedom, leading to immense well-being. So, very, very broad brushstroke with this, and just, just to give a description. The first one, uh, what's called the first jhana, uh, is coming out of what, what we talked about yesterday and what's already in, in some people's experience, this piti, this pleasant physical uh, sensation that's happening in meditation. Uh, what happens is that the meditation uh, progresses and the piti gets more and more common and begins to build. Um, at a certain point, it becomes quite steady and relatively strong. Could be very strong, could be not so strong. The actual strength is not so important. But it becomes quite steady. And at that point, a meditator can learn with practice to take the piti, the pleasurable sensations themselves, take that as an object of concentration. Leave the breath. Some teachers say, keep the breath and mix it in with it. I'm happy to go either way. And maybe it's good to learn both ways. Take the PT and, in a way, take that as a focus, absorb the mind, the consciousness into the PT, meaning just really get into it, really enjoy it, and allow it, encourage it, learn how to uh, uh, make it suffuse the whole body. So the, the Buddha's words, direct translation, uh, saturates and suffuses the whole body, leaving not a spot untouched, drenches the whole body in this PT. So everything, all the normal body sensations, replaced with PT, with this, with this pleasure, and one, as much as possible, uh, uh, surrenders to it, opens to it, enjoys it, sinks the mind into it, and, and maintains that as a state. And it's really, really nice. Uh, and after a while, uh, and, and people progress at very different rates with this. It's usually a matter of uh, months, uh, whatever, it depends on how, uh, you know, what the conditions are. But at whatever rate, and again, that's no, it's just the person, the conditions that are coming together, there's no judgment there. After a while, this PT transforms. And what was an intense physical feeling with a sense of sort of background happiness, uh, the happiness begins to come to the fore. And the, the physical feeling is still there, but the happiness begins to really take prominence. Uh, and incredibly fulfilling happiness. Uh, 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 happiness almost the like of what, these are very altered states of consciousness, outside of the realm of our usual experience. So we don't even usually come close to a happiness like that. Intensely fulfilling happiness. Could be 
very bubbly, it could be quieter in the whole range in there. Um, immensely fulfilling happiness with love in it and all that. And the, P- the PT is still there, the physical feeling in the background. And again, one learns how to sustain that, um, suffuse the whole body and the whole mind in a way with that, and uh, kind of surrender and enjoy and, and plunge into it in a very full way. And there's lots more to say about each of these, so I'm just kind of whisking through in a way, the, the, the bus tour of, uh, of John. After a while, uh, that happiness is almost like the heart has drunk its, its fill. It's complete, it feels a complete fulfillment. It's, it's really completely satisfied with the happiness. Uh, and what happens then is a kind of profound contentment. It's had its, it's really a fulfillment there. And that contentment takes prominence. And that contentment deepens into a, a almost otherworldly sense of peacefulness. At first in here, but then a sense of peacefulness actually expanding out in a way to almost seem like it's embracing everything. Profound tranquility. So all those, you know, picture ads that one sees sometimes of, you know, the holiday in the tropics or Greece and the, you know, the nicely bronzed couple are lying on the beach with the Campari and all that. It's supposed to make you feel like this really feels. <laughs> when you get to the beach, it's often mm, not quite it. There's something, this, this is, is somehow touching the being at such a profound level of tranquility, of, of peacefulness. The whole being, almost the whole world seems bathed in that. It's not necessarily that these states are limited to the sitting meditation. They can kind of spill over. Uh, these qualities can spill over into any posture at any, any time, really. And then that tranquility matures and deepens and sort of descends into uh, a, a stillness, a complete stillness of being. Excuse me, extremely bright, extremely present, but immensely still. Uh, nothing else really going on except stillness. And again, the whole body has become uh, kind of dissolved in that stillness. The whole mind, in a way, has become dissolved in that stillness. And then that too can, for a sound, deepen. And a state of immense and actually infinite spaciousness. This is the fifth, uh, what the Buddha called the realm or the sphere of infinite spaciousness, of infinite space, excuse me. And all sense of physicality, all sense of form disappears and there's nothing but space. Nothing but space, infinite space. that too can deepen, and the space becomes as if it's, uh, in different ways, sort of um, a manifestation of consciousness, as if consciousness itself is infinite, and spreading throughout, infinitely throughout the cosmos. So this has its 
you know, parallels in other traditions and cosmic consciousness and that kind of thing. And there really is a, a very real sense that consciousness is not in here, somewhere in here. It's actually spread in some extremely mystical but very real way throughout, uh, throughout the cosmos, throughout the universe. At deeper levels of this, everything is consciousness. Piece of paper, the floor, the walls, the birds, the trees. It's all consciousness, animate or inanimate. Truly uh, remarkable states of being. But even that can deepen. And this consciousness, in a way, gets absorbed in a sense of what's called infinite nothingness. The only thing that's there is an overwhelming sense of nothing. Nothing, nothing, nothing inner, nothing outer. And that may sound incredibly bleak or scary, and to some people it is at first, in the same way that the PT can be scary at first. But one learns how to uh, find a home in these states and uh, you know, absorb and, and be transformed by and drink their fruits. The last one, the eighth one, is uh, even that sense of nothingness disappears. And it's almost, you're really at the borderline of what language is capable of communicating. Something called the realm of neither perception nor non-perception. The mind is not even resting, the awareness is not even resting or conceiving of a nothing, a nothingness. It's, it's sort of as if uh, light is coming through a room and not landing anywhere. There's still a subtle sense of being in that state, but there's not really anything perceived in that state. So, all this, I'm very aware, may sound completely abstract, and I, I don't know. And in a way it is, it's, it's way beyond what, what our normal, conventional, common experience is. So that's the very briefest possible dis- description, of, as I said, the bus tour. Each of them, have particular insights, and this is where this, uh, for me, gets very interesting. In the second jhana, uh, this happiness, one goes in and out of this uh, remarkable happiness, uh, and after a while, the being has tasted of that happiness so deeply and, in a way, frequently, that the uh, compulsive pull of uh, sense desires, need to have, I need to have uh, pleasant food, I need to have this or that, I need to have whatever it is, it just pales in comparison for good in one's life. It completely relativizes the place of, um, the place of our addiction to sense pleasure. That comes out of the happiness for a lot of people. Uh, it's hard to say what the what the first jhana of the PT, what, what comes out of that, I think, for me, maybe it's just a sense of possibility, a possi- what the possibilities of consciousness might be, of a consciousness not caught up in the hindrances, not caught up so much in issues, I'm not sure. The tranquility, the peacefulness, the profound peacefulness, uh, in that state, there is a sense of not needing or wanting anything at all to be in any way different. No pressure on self, no pressure on the world to be at all different, not one hair's breadth different. A genuine sense of wishlessness comes in there. And the insight is, 
uh, one sees true peace is not so much in getting what I want, but it's in the letting go, it's in the wishlessness, it's in the non-wishing. And it's not just a kind of intellectual, yeah, yeah, you know, that's a nice time of thought. Somehow taken in, this is, this is really the fruit of all this uh, stuff, it's somehow gone into the cells, taken in in a way that is, is really learnt, and learnt in the body. The fourth jhana, this, this immense stillness, is, is uh, a hugely powerful state. Immense power in the mind there, immense strength in the mind. Uh, strength that we really need for our life. Um, there's a sense of a very, very deep rest there. The whole being, mind and body, come to a complete rest, deeper even than sleep. The sense of the self at that point is also extremely quiet. I mean, it's quiet in any of this, but it's extremely quiet. There's barely any whisper of a self-sense. So we're getting a very real sense of what maybe life might be like when we're not uh, so much living it from the self. In a sense that, in a way, one has to let go of the self to reach profound peace. It's also what the Buddha calls equanimity. It's very steady, that state. In the uh, realm of infinite space, the fifth jhana, there is what many insights. One is just a sense of spaciousness that comes deeply into one's life. The other, I think, I feel it's very significant, is uh, begins to impress very deeply on consciousness uh, a sense of oneness as a real reality, as a real fact of life. So this sense of separation, me here, you there, this table here, begins to dissolve. We, we enter in a very real way to a whole different perception of reality, and reality as oneness. In this state of infinite space, it's primarily a kind of physical oneness. So, all that stuff that we hear in, in science, that uh, all the molecules in this room that we're, we all are made of, that the different atoms and molecules, that they all originated in the same big bang of some big star somewhere and the atoms drifted into the solar system, etc. And that's a sort of nice, uh, you know, scientific thought, but it becomes a very real, heartfelt, overwhelmingly heartfelt reality at that point. Uh, or that we all, everything in the universe originating in the Big Bang was literally one at one point. A very mystical kind of understanding, a whole different opening. Again, as I'm saying, just to, as I'm saying, it's just to, just to, I'm not actually sure what the reactions are, but just to, just to be aware. Uh, in the sixth jhana, infinite consciousness, that oneness goes beyond the physical to an even uh, deeper sense of oneness, where it's all one consciousness, it's all one mind, with this cosmic consciousness sense uh, that's uh, sometimes found in, in the Hindu tradition. The seventh jhana is extremely significant in terms of freedom. And one goes into this and comes out, and uh, the sense of different things, or things existing, either inner things like thoughts and emotions, or outer things, begins to uh, not be taken so seriously. We, we lose our uh, complete belief in, in the reality of things, infinite uh, infinite nothingness, infinite no-thingness. 
that the, the reality of things is, is dissolved, is punctured. And of course we're still perceiving things outside of that jhana, but, uh, but it's, if, if we question enough in it, and if we go deeply enough in it, really begin to question. The, the level of freedom that comes into one's life at that, at that point is, is profound and, and uh, extremely expansive. In the eighth jhana, the last jhana, it's the sense that everything, even the sense of nothingness, everything is, is a perception. It's just a perception. It's a built perception. That's not to say it's not real, but it's just to say everything is a perception. And that will relativize it. So even suffering is just a perception. And there's a sense of immense relief and freedom with that. That's the bus tour. So the Buddha, to make this, to, to, to make this practice um, transformative on a deep level, uh, sometimes people slip into these states in a vipassana meditation or occasionally, you know, in, in the shopping mall or whatever, you know, occasionally. Admittedly, uh, rarely. But um, the, if we're talking about samatha practice and jhana practice, then one really wants to be able to kind of enter into these states and remain there. Then they're less and less kind of random events that one can't control, or they just come up for a few seconds or minutes or whatever. One really enters and remains in this state and sustains it. And this may sound, I mean, probably both sounds, I don't know, already far-fetched, but it's possible, and again, uh, people even in this hall right now, it's possible that a person can learn with practice to move at will between any of these eight states. And so one just has, one just says to oneself, happiness, and the happiness appears, and one can enter into it. And one says to oneself, nothingness, and everything becomes nothing, and one can enter into that. And can ping-pong around uh, by intention, by will. Uh, one can enter into it and leave it and stay there, etc. And the Buddha talks about mastery. And, and as I said, this is a very real possibility. This is probably, I don't know how it sounds, but it's a very real possibility with practice, with, with, with the right work, etc. So, if we talk about deep samatha practice, we're talking about, and talk about jhana practice, and there's a huge uh, debate been going on about this, especially in Western <laughs> Buddhism, uh, for the last thirty-something years, about whether there's any point in this, whether it's a distraction, whether it's an attachment, etc. Or another question is how how much of this is a jhana? For instance, some some of you have been experiencing some piti. How, how much? What makes a jhana? And so there's two factors that uh, I feel there's a bit of confusion around this area. One, one is how strong, let's say, the happiness is, or the piti, or the tranquility, or whatever. How strong that is. So it can be extremely intense, or it can be much, much more subtle. The other factor is how much absorption there is. How much we're so into this... Um, so into this state, this happiness or whatever, that we actually don't notice anything else. That we don't hear anything, don't feel anything in the body, don't, uh, and in some uh, teachers will say, it should be that someone could come and chop off your head and you don't even notice. I think that's a little over the top, but 
um, these two factors, the strength of it and the, and the degree of absorption, there's the assumption, um, there's the assumption obviously that it has to be really, really strong and, and completely absorbed, and that's what jhana is. And there's this question, when is it jhana and when is it not? To me it's a completely irrelevant question. It's just, it's not asking the right question. Uh, what's more important, what the Buddha points at, is a steadiness of the state, steadiness, and um, and this completely pervading the whole body. Those factors are important. It's very easy, and uh, very easy for people to hear about jhana or want to practice this way, and suddenly it's this thing that we want to attain, or this thing that ego or self wants to wrap itself around and define itself, or, or whatever, in that way. So we assume, or we might assume, put it that way, we might assume, it's common to assume that, of course, uh, so-and-so says it's jhana if you can still hear something. Some other teacher says it's only jhana if, if yeah, you know, your head can be chopped off and all that and you don't recognize. And we assume, well, the deeper one must be true, that must be better, that must be the real thing. But, uh, to quote Jesus, by their fruits you shall know them. By their fruits you shall know them. So there's a point to jhana. Something should be coming out of it. It's not some, you know, uh, stripe that we give ourselves or something. Um, It should be leading to insight and peace and well-being and that kind of fruit in our life. If it is, then it's working. Then it's it's it. Uh, if it's not, then kind of so what? And it may be, and I, I don't know because I don't have enough experience talking to enough people, uh, that someone is extremely absorbed and no insight is coming out of it at all. So, how do we know if it's jhana? Well, how do we know if a tree is an apple tree? If, if it gives apples? And, and the fruit of jhana is, is, is insight, is peace, is well-being. So, a lot of the, the fruits of jhana, a lot of the benefits, are just kind of extensions of what I've already talked, what I talked about yesterday, and probably in the opening talk, about the extensions of samadhi. Uh, but just go through there, expand a little more huge, uh, very real confidence comes into one's practice, just even tasting a little bit of this. And I don't know, maybe, maybe for some people, even in the very short period of this retreat, I haven't been any jhana or anything, but it's just, just having a sense of something's possible. Oh, uh, when we can develop a confidence, a very real confidence that our happiness, we are able to be happy uh, in and of ourselves. We're less dependent on the outer circumstances being exactly how we want them to be. There's a very real sense that we have a reservoir and resource of inner happiness that is less dependent. That gives in one's life a huge sense of confidence about moving into uh, new areas, about moving into the unknown, about losing uh, this or that in one's life. There's just the confidence. I know happiness can be there. Tremendous for the lessening of fear and the opening in that way in one's life. It brings confidence in oneself, brings a confidence in the Dharma. 
that we begin to go through this even just a little bit and you see, oh yeah, okay, my experience corresponds to what the Buddha's talking about. And then you go, maybe the next stage, maybe you, the happiness opens itself up. <coughs> and you realize as well, well, that's what he said too. And look, it maps one after the other. And then it begins to come, well, if this is true, maybe the third one's true, and etc., etc. And one, instead of the Dharma, can, can seem very abstract, especially if you read the original uh, discourses, can seem like, this has nothing to do with my experience, I don't know. And we can be very unsure about the whole, the whole project of Dharma. But as one begins to tread and taste the fruits in a very real way, it's, um, one, one really begins to have faith in, in the whole thing, and in a way, in everything that the Buddha said, in a, in a very uh, experientially based way. And as I said yesterday, tremendous soil for insights. The the most um, the, 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 the most prime conditions for insight to grow is out of this very bright, very awake, receptive, uh, pliable, malleable, soft, open mind that comes out of John. Extremely uh, wonderful soil for insights. And insights just begin to arise spontaneously for most people, just spontaneously doesn't even have to go hunting them. Very deep insights come. Quality of life, the whole quality of life begins to take on another dimension. We, there is a kind of disenchantment gradually, as I said, with sense pleasure, but with really everything that does not lead to freedom. Everything that's kind of not really helpful, we, that we're just less pulled by it, less enchanted. Tremendous healing, tremendous healing. Uh, of course, not all healing comes through uh, just deep samatha and talked right, right at the beginning of this talk. The whole broad range of practice, so that there's uh, dealing with the difficult and listening to that and exploring that and uncovering that and learning how to um, uh, how to take away what is supporting difficulty. And then there's also tremendous healing that comes out of these uh, very lovely, very deep states. Intuition, all kinds of intuition flower, particularly intuition about insight, intuition about practice, about ways to practice, about how practice works. Sensitivity, all this is increasing, receptivity. The whole sense of uh, that we Typical, typically we have as part of the human condition of viewing the problem, a problem that I'm having as being something out there. This situation is a problem. What was said, what, what they said to me is a problem. This uh, illness in the body is a problem. This emotion is a problem. That whole view of a problem being out there begins to be undermined uh, in a very, um, again, very lasting way. We, we lose the grip of that view, that belief, that problems are out there. And then there's the... difficult to explain and, and don't really have time to go into it, but uh, this, this word emptiness, what it really means is that all this, inner and outer, all this world, all this uh, field of experience, is not real 
in the way that it appears to be real. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It's not a nihilism. It's not real in the way that it appears to be real, as totally solid and inherently existent. This is, very, this is the most difficult topic in the Dharma. We don't have time to go into it tonight. Sometimes a person in practice is beginning to get a sense of, of that, of the not quite reality of things. And for some people this is extremely scary. The very ground of existence it, it begins to tremble and they don't know on what they are standing. For some people it's great, it's just Yahoo right away. Uh, I don't know if they're in the minority or the majority, I think it's the minority. For most people it's quite scary. And the well-being, the healing, the loveliness uh, from these deep states of samatha, samadhi, help to ease one into that, uh, into kind of accepting uh, the not quite reality of things, the emptiness of things, accepting that mystery of things uh, in a way that's not so existentially angstful for the heart. And that's extremely significant actually because then we feel like we can progress looking uh, the truth deeper and deeper in the face without this kind of keep having to turn away or back off or, or slow down or, or just kind of stop practicing for a while. There's, there's, a, there's a very real sense we can just keep looking and uncovering uh, levels of truth or whatever you want to call it about it with, with an ease, with an opening, with an accommodation in the heart. It's an immense gift. few months ago, we had a retreat, a three-week retreat on loving-kindness and compassion as a path to awakening. And there was quite a lot of samatha, as I said, samatha can come out of loving-kindness and compassion too. There was quite a lot of samatha for many of the people in that retreat. And one, one of the retreats that said to me at one point, probably two weeks or so through, um, he said, I'm getting a lot of you know, nice, nice, deep, calm states, and I don't know if it was Jayanak or not, I didn't really go into it because I wasn't that interested at that point. Uh, but he said to me, it seems to me that I'm better off practicing without samadhi, without samatha, because that will apply more to my life, because when I go out, I'm not going to have all these fantastic states of calmness. So I need to learn how to practice when I'm agitated, when my mind is thinking a lot. Uh, and you can see a lot of integrity there, you know, in, in the thinking. I didn't ask him how he was planning to distract himself on the retreat. Okay. Um, but the point, there's, there is a tremendous, it's, it's true what he said, we need to learn to practice in both modes. You can't rely on just being in very deep states of, of samadhi all the time. But, uh, so we need to learn to practice, as I said right at the beginning, when there's difficulty, when there's agitation, find our way with that, open to that, navigate through that. Um, but not to underestimate the carryover effect from, from samadhi, from samatha. It really, in, in a way, it gets into the cells uh, with, with deep practice, gets into the cells, and will have a transfer effect when there's uh, agitation, a lot of thought, etc. So both are fruitful, both are fruitful. And this is what I was saying about the breadth of practice. Both are fruitful. We need to be able to practice whatever the conditions, inner or outer. Okay, then last night I touched on also this, this 
factor of whether all this leads to attachment. And in a way, as I was explaining how the the jhanas unfold, uh, one ripens into the other. And when, for instance, we move on to the tranquility, well, the pity and the happiness are, we become less attached to that. We've got a new toy to play with, in a way. They, by themselves, let go of the attachments before, and there are huge, as I've said already, a huge lever in letting go of our other attachments in life, our less healthy attachments. Reflecting on this, it seems to me there are three ways that, that attachment does and could arise to deep states of samatha, to samadhi. The first is to the pleasure of it, and this is often what we hear, don't, you know, don't do that because you're careful of the pleasure because you'll get attached to it. Uh, And people do get attached, but it seems to me that the attachment is much more common when the experience is rare. So if we just have one or maybe two instances of this in the context of a retreat or some other situation in our life, we say, what was that? It's so different, I want to get that back. If there's uh, a skill developed and one moves, you know, say with the PT, and it just becomes something that's accessible, uh, you know, not all the time, but just a fairly regular visitor in one's life, this pleasure in the body, the PT, uh, we, we actually become less attached to it. It's like water or something. We're not, we are actually attached to water, but it's not a problem. It's not a problem because we know, well, I'll just, I'll just turn on the tap. So when there's a lot of it, actually there's less attachment. Second way that one might get attached, one might get attached to the pleasure, one might get attached, the ego gets puffed up, look what I can do. Uh, And again, very understandable, very normal even. Again though, only if it's rare. With enough practice, what happens, as you've already seen over the days here, it goes like this. It's so completely wavy, it's so completely non-linear, the practice. Um, There's moving into what's lovely and there's being uh, shunted out, uh, turfed out by the hindrances. And that just happens over and over, over and over, no matter actually what depth one gets to, to, uh, to a large or small degree. One, one cannot maintain these states all the time, no way. What one sees, though, over and over, that's, that's actually nothing to do with me. It's nothing to do with self. It's not me being clever and kind of gifted or this or that or, or whatever. It's when the conditions are there, 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 there is this state. When the conditions are there, there's a state. When the conditions aren't there, no state. When the conditions are there for the hindrances, the hindrances are there. When the conditions are not there, no hindrances. And one really sees it in terms of, n- not of self, in terms of conditions coming together. And the whole uh, way that the ego might get attached to all this is just, it's just gone. This should happen, if, and if it's not happening, it should be something one reflects on. Attached to the pleasure, attached to the ego sense. The third way is, I think, the most insidious, and in a way it doesn't get talked about much. It happens in a much deeper states, say the last four, four or five jhanas. Attachment to view, attachment to view, meaning uh, a sense of consciousness being infinite, of the real nature of things being consciousness itself. Um, that kind of thing. It's extremely powerful perception when it comes. 
And there's a very real possibility that one takes it as the way things are, as the truth of things. Part one of my teachers used to say, Jantanasari used to say, it's actually really helpful to explore all this, because uh, it's also not necessary to explore all these states. It's just, it's a possibility, one of the possibilities, but it's not necessary. So like I said, when you're listening, uh, it's just a kind of slideshow of what's possible. Uh, but he used to say, it actually can be very helpful because one might slip into some of these states in insight meditation or something and think one has discovered something ultimate because one hasn't had enough experience seeing, oh, it's just infinite consciousness or whatever. It's not actually ultimate yet. So knowing what is and what is not ultimate, extremely significant. It's also possible that uh, it's, the way we're working is taking one object, in our case the breath, but it could be matter, it could be anything, and developing the steadiness, developing the collectiveness of mind, and then that deepens. It's also possible that vipassana meditation, being with things in that openness, looking at things in different ways, being with the openness <coughs> of experience, actually also leads to the, to the jhanas. There's a way that can happen. The, the jhanas are actually a product of letting go. It's not so much about concentration, it's about letting go. When there's a lot of letting go, some uh, very deep letting go, some or other of, of these are potential. So when we're doing insight meditation, what we're really doing is letting go of clinging, or what we should be doing is letting go of clinging. And if we let go of a lot of clinging, uh, some state like this can be there as a potential. Or we might be letting go of ways of perceiving and shifting into other ways of perceiving. And again, just to paint the picture, uh, just to paint the picture, it is also possible that one, with acquaintance with all this, one develops a skill of working in insight practice and using the insight practice to move into the jhana. It's almost as if filtering out one lets go in insight practice and a happiness comes because one has let go, because there's more openness and then kind of filtering out that happiness from the experience and collecting it and moving into, in that case, the second jhana. So, like I said at some point yesterday, jhana is actually more to do with letting go than it is to do with uh, feverishly holding something in place, which it might seem like at first. It's more to do with letting go, letting go, and it's almost like let one lets go of more and more, and uh, less and less appears in consciousness. So all that, uh, and uh, you know, I'm aware to go back to what I said at the beginning. There's probably quite a range of reactions to all that in the hall. Uh, some people fascinated, some people uh, completely disinterested, bored, uh, some people horrified, <laughs> maybe, some people uh, feeling bad again about, you know, all, all that. Um, just painting a picture of possibility, 
just painting a picture of possibility that that's out there, you know. Uh, all that that I've talked about today is is a huge, you know, a huge chunk of one of these avenues, and probably for most people that's uh, a good chunk of time developing all that. Um, and certainly, if you're talking about that kind of level of mastery, it's, you're talking about a long time of really dedicated practice. But uh, something that one can, in a way, pick up and put down. So a person can be on retreat for a while and get to a certain place, and this isn't a guarantee, of course, but get to a certain place in this deepening and kind of put the bookmark in the book at that point and go off and do, you know, live one's life for a while and come back on retreat and almost, within a few days, open the book at where one has left the bookmark and, and carry on the journey. And of course, that's not a guarantee. But I think the main point I want to say is, uh, perhaps what I want to say is, hear this how you like. Hear it how you like, you know. If it's, if it's not interesting, if it's even somewhat repulsive, which might be possible for some people, that's okay, you know, it's okay, it's not necessary, all of this. But for some people, uh, it might be interesting, it might be fascinating, and what I would like to say is that it's a very real possibility. And I feel that uh, it's, in a way, a duty to put out what the possibilities of practice are, so that, so that it's known. This is a possibility. This is a possibility for us as human beings. And we, don't, uh, we know what the possibilities of, of that breadth of Dharma are that I was talking about in the beginning. Let's have a moment or two of quiet together. Tomorrow morning there will be a time for questions. There won't be any interview groups. There'll be a time for questions and answers uh, <coughs> all together. Perhaps we could take a few minutes now. I don't know uh, if that brought up any questions or if there are any questions about the, about the practice uh, right now. Yeah, Julie. to ask if you could just say a word or two about how 
the samatha practice can help you become kinder. Yeah. Um, in its beginning stages, what we're mostly talking about here, uh, in a way we need a certain degree of calmness to be kind. We need a certain degree of openness and presence and kind of uh, that, that kind of receptivity uh, needs to be there. If we're too caught up in our own kind of angst, our own worries, our own agitation, we're not present, we're too, in a way, self-absorbed in the wrong kind of way, and, and the kindness can't be there. So in a way, a climate of, um, a climate of letting go of the kind of usual entanglements allows a natural kindness to come up. As kindness, in a way, is a natural state of the being when it's not entangled, in that sense. As one gets deeper and deeper into all this stuff, um, one of the things that begins opening up is, uh, well, two, two things. One is, there's more and more of that sense of well-being. And it really is as if one has enough. One has enough and it begins to overflow. Now, don't f- one doesn't feel like I need to be kind of looking after myself all the time, or I'm a beggar in any way. There's literally enough and one can feel like one can give. One's more present to give. As it gets really deep, and this bit is touching on what I've talked about tonight, the whole notion of separateness begins, as I mentioned, begins to really be questioned, really, at, at a very deep, uh, meaningful level, begins to be questioned in one's eyes. The whole notion that I'm here and you're there and we're 50 or whatever separate people in the room begins to be questioned. It's not that one doesn't perceive you know, me and you and all that, but as a reality, it begins to be questioned. Non, when there's non-separation, the kindness is, is a matter of, you know, course. It's just na- it's natural. Does that answer? Yes. Yeah. Okay. You talked about all the different paths having pitfalls. Yeah. Um, could you talk about some of these pitfalls? Yeah. So, the, oh, so all the different paths have pitfalls. What are the pitfalls of samatha? Um, I suppose there's a way that when one's practicing something, that, there, that it's possible in the initial stages that one does get a bit self-protective and that kind of thing, a bit into preserving one's own, you know, I don't want to be bothered and don't interrupt my meditation, that kind of thing. That's one of the possible pitfalls. Uh, another is any of these attachments, like I said, but they, hopefully they'll be cleared up with, with that kind of questioning. Um, actually feel that samatha is maybe got less pitfalls than some other paths, you know, but uh, that, that probably that's quite a rare view to have in, in the world. Mostly the pitfalls that it would be would be attachment in, in the different kinds of ways. Um, but I, you know, nothing exists in isolation, so that if one is doing samatha and all this, one, one, needs, one is, I hope, bringing in questioning and insight at the same time and reflecting on one's experiences and what it means about everything. It is possible, and I've actually met people 
who seem to be able to do all this and there's very little questioning and then it's yeah it's pretty strange what comes out of it it's quite uh, can be quite off balance uh, in either um, sort of s- insensitivity to others or very strange ideas about what's real and what isn't real and, and that kind of thing but um, not, not in a sort of schizophrenic way but in a sort of what's ultimate truth and what's not um, but m- m- hopefully this like I said at the beginning those paths are not really those avenues are not really separate so hopefully there's all, all the time this insight and this questioning coming in and one kind of the way that samatha itself would lead very deeply to you know, liberation or whatever it is, when it's used with very strong questioning and one's really reflecting on, on all the experiences and uh, questioning what they mean, what their implications are. Um, hmm. Rebecca? Um, you talked about the possibility of um, being on retreat, practicing, going back to daily living, going yeah. back on retreat. Um, was there any suggestion in that that? This is a practice that you that wouldn't just also develop in your daily sitting alongside your normal life. Or yeah. And given that there are these kind of mind states that are quite old from a general perception, whether that's something that you think would need sort of some support yeah. structure to go, you know, to sort of pass yeah. through. Could everyone hear that? Yeah. Uh, um, question was about whether whether these states that I talked about tonight, whether that's accessible in everyday life, or whether we would need some kind of, um, you know, support support structure for that. Was that? Did I miss something? Mm, yes, yeah, so two questions. Whether, okay. whether it's something that just will develop in, in daily practice, yeah. and secondly, whether yeah. because of the the altered states. Um, whether it would develop in one's daily practice outside of retreat, for most people, my sense is not. I mean, may, maybe the first one, maybe a little bit of PT, uh, not not more than that. Very rarely. I do know, I I do know instances of people though who, um, yeah, are quite remarkable in what they can kind of access. But it's it's very rare. It's very rare. Uh, mostly, it needs a, a retreat environment. And then by su- the second question, support structure, do you mean a retreat support structure or do you mean people to talk to? I mean, like, if you were practicing that in your daily life and it was happening, yeah. would that, <laughs> in, in a way, like, would one feel safe going through that without support? Oh, I see. Um, would one feel safe going through all this in daily life without a support structure? I think, I think if it was happening, if it just happened out of the blue, if nothing much ever happened in your meditation, you suddenly found yourself in infinite nothingness, it would probably be quite freaky. Um, and I've, I know, you know that's, that's definitely happened to people, not in their daily life, but on retreat even, that nothing much happens, and then one day they're suddenly in this void of nothingness, and it you know, scares the living daylights out of them, basically. Um, if one's going step by step, then it's, it's similar to this bath analogy that I was giving before. You, you, you're getting a sense that this is okay, I can trust this, and a sense of it being okay, and, and the next stage, and the next stage. And there's really a sense of, yeah, it's okay. And that gives a kind of um, uh, softening to the, to the whole process, if that makes sense. But it, all this stuff is probably... If, if one was going through any of this, it's probably something you'd want to talk about with someone, just because it's so kind of... Wow, you know, and, and you'd, you'd want to be, 
sharing and, and, and learning and making sure and just, yeah. But it's not like you would feel mad or anything. Uh. Chris, yeah. Um, <coughs> to, con- <coughs> Excuse me. to continue this out of a retreat setting with this kind of practice, would you recommend any other particular kind of meditations to, to, to hook it onto, to have the tooth go that would be particularly compatible? Um, anything really, you could hook this up with anything. Uh, if you were just interested in deepening the samatha, then I would just do this and maybe, maybe metta practice, for instance. But even as I said, using if you're using the vipassana in the right way, it should be leading to letting go, and that letting go will feed the samatha. Um, but it will, as a sort of, if you want to have two practices in your life, you could have any two practices, you know, and they will, they will be very compatible, yeah. Is that answering? I'm not sure I'm getting quite what you're saying. Yeah, it was just <coughs> following on from, the, from Rebecca's question just now about um, given that it is possibly difficult to do out of a retreat setting, yeah. if there could be some kind of balance or some grounding element that would make it more, more doable. It's not difficult because it's not grounding, it's just difficult because it's, they're difficult, they're very subtle, refined states to access and it needs a lot of conditions to come together. It's not difficult for, because it's disorienting in any way or ungrounded. Uh, so it's, it's really just a matter of how much letting go can there be in one's life outside of practice, how much practice time, how much is built on retreat, all that kind of stuff. So a lot, a lot of different factors have to come together. Is that Kate with a question? Yeah. Why do there appear to be so few retreats on Samatha and the Jhanas? Yeah. Um, is the tape on? Yeah. Yeah, it is. I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> Um, partly because it's a very difficult practice so this whole retreat was an experiment I viewed it as an experiment Uh, it's (laughs) don't ask me whether it's a success or a failure my sense was a lot of this stuff is more accessible than is generally known and I just wanted to present the beginnings and people have a sense that they can begin on something um, uh, to really get into it, I mean, my sense was if I was going to do a real summer retreat, I would make it a month long, and period, so that people can really get a sense of, I can, you know, know what what the first jhana really is, and have some some even sense of mastery with it, and just just really get into it. Um, so partly it's that it's the length of retreat and what's required, and partly it's, I mean, it's all kinds of things. You know, people are going to move at very different rates, and there's going to be this question which I talked about, people measuring and feeling the pain of that, which is, it's, it's difficult. You know, it's difficult stuff. Then there's a whole kind of historical kind of thing about how the Dharma has been transmitted to the West. And um, it's just that the, the particular traditions in the 30 or 35 years uh, of the Dharma in the West that are, that are prominent in the West 
the particular tradition, I'm not going to name anything, but th those particular ones are very um, almost anti anti-samatha practice, anti-jhana, and, and those traditions have had a huge effect on the whole way that dharma has spread in the West. Um, my guess and my hope is that as the dharma grows in the West, there will be this broadening that I was talking about right at the beginning, and the, the very real sense that it's fine to do this, it's fine to do this, this as, you know, as a, I've got those three aspects and more, many more avenues, it's fine to do that for a few years, and people will respect or you're doing that right now, that's great, I'm doing this, or we're doing this one together, whatever. There'll be a sense of the breath, and the samatha and jhana practice will, will come into the whole of Western Dharma in a, in a very real way, that I don't f feel it's there as a sort of collective maturity yet. yet. Is that okay? Yeah. Uh, was that what you were getting at? I'm not sure. Yeah, that's exactly. Okay, yeah. No, I was wondering if you could um, talk a little bit about, you know, when, when, when the practice deepens, it seems to be like a, a backlash yeah. that takes place, and you can really sort of, you know, dent one's confidence yeah. in the process. Yeah. And yeah. yeah, Could everyone hear that at the back? Yeah. Yeah. So there, there is often, as I, I think I mentioned yesterday, as, and, and you've probably maybe noticed for yourselves, as the samatha deepens, mind collects and, and it does deepen, there's a state uh, you know, that feels more collected, feels deeper and it all seems to be going swimmingly as they say and then uh, boom, uh, back come the hindrances, back come some at first some issue or other and a uh, lot of difficulty, agitation, there seems to be, sometimes it can seem like if not every time, a lot of the time, when it kind of feels like it's deepening, maybe deepening to a new kind of, just a slightly new level of experience or intensity, or whatever, there's this backlash and a difficulty, usually in the form of, uh, yeah, some hindrance or the other, although we may not even recognize it as a hindrance. Why that is, I don't know. Some people call it a purification, as if you're actually somehow purifying. I, again, I, I take that very delicately. I, I really don't know. What I do know is that it's very common. And at first it can be, as you say, very disheartening. But part of the practice, what I was saying in the first talk on hindrances, it's the less sexy part. One realizes this is going to happen over and over. And one learns to expect those waves and becomes more and more able to deal with the hindrances, more and more able to see them what they are, for what they are, without them blowing up into these issues, you know, this, what I said about these seeds with the sort of fangs and the hooks. That, we see that process going on. And it's not that the, the backlash doesn't happen, it's just that it doesn't blow up so more. We take it much less personally, it's just a human thing, get less involvement in it. And uh, we, we just learn to kind of surf those waves. And so that in the end it doesn't become disheartening at all, it's just, that's just how it goes. It's just, it's just really okay and part of the process. That much, viewing the hindrances as really okay, really not a self assessment or judgment, not spinning into story. If that's all that happened in Samatha practice, there wasn't any of this, you know, wonderful lights and uh, fireworks I've been talking about, that would be great. That would be absolutely great. And some people, and I think they're in the minority, and this, this is where I, I would disagree with sort of what's common, I think they're in the minority. Some people will never get any of this stuff, but they will just keep deepening and deepening the calmness. 
and they will still get this understanding of the hindrances and ability to let them go. And that much is huge, a huge sense of space and relief and kind of ease that comes into one's life over a period of time. So it's really just part of practice. It takes a while to, to kind of learn, oh, it's just, it's just one of these waves and I can see it for what it is without getting so sucked into what it seems to be saying about me or about life or about another person or about here or, or wherever. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Thanks. Okay. I think the last one. Bill. understand how accessible those states are uh, for from the point of view of a, a beginning meditator. Yeah. Um, should a meditator think, uh, of course, people differ tremendously yeah. in their readiness and their abilities, but should a meditator think, well, if I practice an hour a day for five years, maybe I'll be able to attain the jhanas? Or do I need to become a monk or a nun? I would say that either of those is too extreme, and uh-huh. as, as usual, the truth is somewhere in the middle. Um, <laughs> um, and, and as you said, people vary tremendously. The conditions that a person is bringing, the teaching that someone gets, the orientation that someone gets, their own you know, state of physical well-being, all that stuff. Your digestive system has a lot to do with it, you know, really, the Buddha said it. I know. <laughs> um, uh, if you meditate, a, uh, what was the first option? Sort of one, one, an hour, one hour a day for five years. I don't know. You know, um, I wouldn't really even think that way. It's more, yeah. It's more, but it's more a sense of this is a possibility. At some point, it may become more or less interesting to one, and it's it's more like I haven't mentioned it until now. And in a way, we've just been talking about deepening the, the samatha, f- uh, tuning in on, on the comfort and the pleasure. And, and that will take you. It's like just to be where one is and let it unfold. And then it may be uh, something to move into. Usually, if I'm teaching jhana practice, I don't even use the word jhana. Because, again, it's just something that self will grab around and will make a thing of and make a whole big deal about. Have I got it? Haven't I got it? Is it? It's more like, how's the pleasure doing? How's it feeling in the body? Is there, you know, what's there? And let's talk about building that. Let's talk about nourishing that. Let's talk about getting really connected with that. Uh, otherwise, it's just, yeah, it's, it's not that helpful. So I would, it's more like, be where you are and build what you have and, and see what's possible. I don't know if that's maybe not a satisfying answer, but uh, I don't think one needs to be a monk or a nun. I think one needs to take practice seriously, certainly, but I don't think one needs to be a monk or not, absolutely not. Okay, very last one. It's not a question, it's just really, it's only based on conditions anyway, isn't it, really? So yeah. the conditions could come together at any time. Uh, they could, I mean, but it's, the conditions are inner and outer and past and present and all kinds of things, but yeah, it's basically based on conditions. Okay, I think enough. Let's have, um, Just another moment of quiet.
Sarah, if, would you mind ringing the bell at five past again? Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.